Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Praise God. Amen. What an incredible honor it is to be here and be asked to preach. What an amazing journey God has brought us on. Can you say amen? I'm here to tell you that I believe the best days of this fellowship are ahead of us. How many of you can agree with that? Let's give God praise for that. Father, we thank you. Hallelujah, Lord God. We praise you, Lord God, for what you're doing in our midst. Praise God. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Felt stirred to minister uh, in this direction this evening. A lot of misconceptions about what's going to happen in the afterlife. False religions are full of this. Some time ago, uh, I got an email. Somebody sent me an email, and attached to it was a black and white photo. And it was actually a picture of a bunch of Catholic nuns, and they were all holding shotguns. Maybe you saw that. And the caption was something like this. It, It said, when Abdul the terrorist stepped into eternity... These were not the 70 virgins he was expecting. So there's lots of false notions about eternity. But the word of God is actually quite clear about what happens when we die. It's very clear. There's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a reckoning for those who reject Christ, and we know that. But what a lot of people don't realize or have not embraced is there's also going to be a reckoning for those who are Christians. And what's noteworthy about this is the Bible calls both of these judgment. I want to preach a sermon I've called the final exam. Out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's read verse 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul writing, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men... But we are well known to God, and I trust are well known in your consciences. The final exam. I want to look first of all at the unemphasized reality. Much of the professing church has fraudulently shifted the emphasis of salvation. For many in the modern Christian era, the priority is being placed primarily on this life. And not only the priority on this life, but prospering 
in this life. And I want to say that that is a fraudulent misrepresentation of the gospel. And it is very, very dangerous. John Wesley recognized this as he gave his life to the preaching of the gospel and did a powerful job sending preachers into the earth. He knew that true conversion leads to industry, or meaning hard work, that people that get saved, they get jobs and they learn how to work. And then they learn stewardship. They learn to pay their tithes and be generous and, and, and be frugal and wise with their money. And ultimately, because of these things and the blessing of God, they begin to prosper. And the term redemption and lift was coined to describe this inevitable dynamic. But what's interesting is to Wesley, this was a threat to revival. This was a grave concern. And this was something to be guarded against. On the contrary, today's megachurch culture makes this their goal. And James disagrees with that. In James 4.13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a place, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. In our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 was written by the Apostle Paul, and he was wanting to encourage believers that were experiencing some very severe persecution for their faith. And a quick overview of this chapter, in verse 1 through 8, he's giving them a perspective. He's saying, even if this trouble, this persecution results in you dying for your faith, He's telling them, you have eternity to look forward to. And this was the focus and meant to be the focus of the early church. Verse 9 and 10, our text again, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, meaning whether in the presence of God or not yet, to be well-pleasing to him. And verse 10, I want you to read that very clear, carefully, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ, church. This is a powerful revelation that is unemphasized in our day to the point of scandal. This is not referring to the great white throne judgment of Revelations 20. That judgment is for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. This determines where people will spend eternity. And those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. This judgment is not talking about the unbeliever. This judgment is talking about 
the Christian. Because that's the context of the chapter. He just got done talking about making sure you stay true in persecution, even if they kill you. He says, because we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Bema seat in the original. And this, we could say, determines how believers will experience eternity. Because, you know, how many of you know, even Christians have some strange ideas about heaven. All you got to do is wait for Christmas season to come around. And appears the cards, you know, Christmas cards with pictures of little cherub babies and diapers. You know, the idea that people in heaven are going to have wings and harps and hang out on clouds. Really? I don't know about you, but that never really appeared to, appealed to me. Even as a sinner, I thought, you yeah, know, that's weird. Or the idea that just making heaven is the end in itself. You know, that as new converts, we used to talk about what we thought heaven was going to be. And, you know, it was whatever you derive pleasure from in life, you know, uh, that, you know that's, that's on this side of righteousness. You know, that it's just going to be heaven for you. And, or there's the idea that heaven is going to be this egalitarian paradise where everyone's just the same because, after all, we made heaven. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think any of those can be defended scripturally. Heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven's going to be powerful and glorious and beyond imagination. But I don't think it's going to be any of those things. Because the Bible tells us the bima seat. This is the word used in the Greek. And it has a history. Paul was actually referring to something that they would have a reference point for. The bima was used in the Greek as a raised platform from which a ruler would sit and pass sentence. When Jesus stood before Pilate, it was before the bima seat. When Paul stood before Festus, that was the same word in the Greek, the bima seat. This word was also used in the ancient Olympic Games where a ruler would sit at the finish line and award the contestants according to their performance. Barclay said, even when Paul was thinking of the life to come, he never forgot that we are on the way not only to glory, but also to judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul may be thinking simply of the tribunal of the Roman magistrate before which he himself had stood. Or he may be thinking of the Greek way of justice, even so... Someday we shall await the verdict of God. And when we remember that, life becomes a tremendous and thrilling thing, for we are making or marring a destiny. Winning or losing a crown. And time becomes the testing ground of eternity. 
Scriptural Christianity is not about this life. It is about eternity. Where even as believers, we will be judged. And for the sake of this sermon, I'm calling that the final exam. We're, face, we're going to face, every one of us, a final exam. And we are going to be graded on how we lived. And this is the unemphasized reality. I want to look secondly then at the simple metrics. And I want to say right here that this judgment for believers does not imply a works-based salvation. The Bible is very clear, unequivocally. You cannot earn your salvation. You will never deserve your salvation. We are saved by grace. It is a gift of God. Can you say amen? But having chosen faith and repentance, the Bible is clear that the believer is no longer free to live for themselves. It is a trade. And just because we trade our wasted lives for another chance does not mean we have earned salvation. We have never put God in our debt. It is always going to be a gift. But the Bible says that our conversion and our salvation is conditional on us being willing to repent and turn from our old life and our new life belongs to Jesus Christ. And the measure of our accountability and reward is a simple metric. And that is obedience and productivity and areas of things that are eternal. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. Because this is a portion of scripture that is quite profound. And it's in the context of Jesus' return, and there are four servants described in this portion of Scripture. Luke 12, verse 45 and 46, clearly is describing the backslider. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and, ink and drink with the drunken, the master of that servant will come on a day which he is not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware and cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Can everybody agree? He's talking about a servant who implies somebody who is actually surrendered to God and is supposed to be serving God, but is backslidden and because of that, his portion will be with the unbelievers. So here's a person that got saved and lost their salvation. But the next one's interesting, verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. Now it doesn't say that this guy went out and got drunk. He just didn't obey the master. Verse 48. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripe, shall be beaten with few. And then he says, for everyone who 
Much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of them they will ask the more. You know, this portion of scripture reminds me of a sermon that I heard way back in the 1980s by a, a man of God named Warren Johnson. Some of the older guys, we get together and we talk about Warren Johnson's sermons. And we, you know, we, we say, you have this sermon, and we like, we want to trade him like baseball cards, you know. How many of you remember Warren Johnson? He preached a sermon, I believe, on a Wednesday night. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And this was about judgment also. And it had to do with saints in judgment and, and being a part of that, judging the world. And he kept saying, it means something. Now, it may mean this. And then he would explore a possibility of what this means, but he would always say, it means something. And that sermon shook me to the core. And you know what? This scripture means something. I don't think you can lightly dismiss this scripture. And I will leave you to study this out. And I will leave you to come to some conclusions. But it says what it says. It says that backsliders will get the same eternal treatment as people that never got saved. He says there are going to be people that knew the master's will and did not do it. And there are going to be some painful consequences. And then he's going to say there are those who weren't as clear on the master's will but did some things they shouldn't have and there's going to be some consequences. Barnes said this, they who have many privileges who are often warned who have the gospel, they who are early taught in Sunday schools or by pious parents or in other ways, can you say Prescott Bible Conference for 30 years, will have much more to answer for than those who have no such privileges. It means something. The privileges bestowed on those who are part of a great movement, who have clear revelation about the Great Commission and it being everybody's responsibility. And that the local church was designed by God as the place where every member finds their place of ministry. That is, that is pretty common knowledge around here. That's the word of God. That we are all called to the ministry. That we all have a part in world evangelism, that we all have opportunity, we all have a place. We are vital to the whole and we will be held accountable. It means something. And Adam Clark said, we find it is a crime to be ignorant of God's will because to everyone God has given less or more 
of the means of instruction. Those who have had much light or the opportunity of receiving much and have not improved it to their own salvation and the good of others shall have punishment proportioned to the light they have abused. On the other hand, those who have had little light and few means of improvement shall have few stripes, shall be punished only for the abuse of knowledge they possessed. Church, this means something. Let's take a look at the good news in Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Blessed or happy are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Down to verse 41. And Peter said, now Peter's a little freaked out. Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to everybody? (laughs) 42. The Lord said, who is this faithful and wise steward who his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion and food in due season? Happy is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will make him his ruler over all that he has. That means something. Luke chapter 12 means something, church. To whom much is given, much will be required. Clear, clearly the word of God contrasts believers' reward, loss of reward, and consequences, even for those who are saved. Let's look at our verse again, verse 14 and 15. For the love of life compels us, Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them, who rose again. Anybody in a mood for a companion scripture? 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. We are labors together with God. For no other foundation can anyone lay than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now... If anyone builds on this foundation, Christians, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. One translation of that says, as if you had escaped through the fire. Or another translation, but only as one escaping through the flames. So the foundation is the finished work of Christ. Nothing can be added to it. Can you say amen? You cannot earn it. You'll never deserve it. You'll never purchase it. This is not a works-based salvation. But we have an obligation to build on that finished work. Materials are the decisions we make in life. What we give priority to. The fire is God's measure of value in those decisions. What represents his kingdom? 
Those decisions that reflect his calling upon our lives and what is eternal, therefore wood, hay, and stubble is that which has no eternal value, that which is worldly, self-willed, disobedient, the gold, silver, precious stones. We know that those materials are made better by fire. Things that are made better by eternity. The decisions that say, I'm going to do God's will no matter what it costs. I'm going to obey the call of God, whether it makes me comfortable or not. I am going to speak the truth in love, but I will speak the truth, whether that's pleasant or unpleasant. I'm going to lay down my life because my life is not my own. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the real life that I live, I now have within this body, is a result of my trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not one of those who treats Christ's death as meaningless. And again, the issue that Paul's addressing is the surrender to God's will. See, for Paul, all of life meant being where God wanted him to be, with whom God wanted him to be laboring, doing what God wanted him to do. It's a given. The Great Commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. It is a given that every believer is called to participate in the Great Commission in the context of the local church. Every person in every one of our churches has a ministry that God has intended for them to fulfill. Everyone. And it is a given that faithfulness is simply being where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to be doing. That means the judgment seat of Christ has a very simple metric. Obeying God's will and productivity that has eternal value. God is not grading on the curve, folks. He measures every believer by a simple criteria. It's very simple. To live according to his eternal plan and build for eternity equals pass. Anything else is fail. It's the simple metric. I want to close then with the promised reward. This was not written by Paul to be harsh. This was not written by Paul to be heavy. He was encouraging these saints to continue in their, their faithfulness even unto death. You know, final exams can be traumatic. You know, I, I could talk about the judgment seat and, and, and the few criminals among us all would begin to treble a little bit. But every, everybody in here has been freaked out by a final exam. I was reading about some students. They told some real-life stories on themselves during finals week 
One said, I sat in the front row of a class of 60. In the middle of my physics exam, I sneezed so violently that I hit my face on the desk and got a bloody nose. That would be distracting. That would set you back. Another said, during an oral exam in front of my entire class, I suddenly froze and then, bl- <laughs> then blurted out to be continued and then fainted. That would be brutal. The last one, this guy said, I was high for the first time in my life during finals. And I laughed at every question I read. I think I remember him. I think I remember him. Finals. Thankfully for us, it's not that complicated. Verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's not complicated. For the believer, it's the approaching of the choices of life and the temptations to sin with an aim to please God. I just want to please God. When you have a choice, is this what God wants me to do with my life? Will this bring an eternal profit when you're at the crossroads? It's very, we're talking about a very simple obedience. And this is something everyone can do. This is not just for those called to preach. This is not just those who are going to be missionaries. And God has a reward for every believer, and there's nothing in the Word of God that implies there are bigger rewards for the bigger ministries. On the contrary, James 3.1 The Word of God warns that leadership carries a greater judgment. And instead, the Word of God demonstrates that every believer has a potential for a huge reward. In the Gospel, we have the widow's might. We have the cold water to a disciple. You know, this conference is is an amazing symphony of people Getting involved in ministry. Everything from rallying to the finish of the building to the, the operations of, the, of, of every facet of this conference in the Prescott Church and, and many from visiting churches and neighboring churches that come to help. I'm going to tell you something. God sees every ministry in the church. God sees every decision to put God first. Every decision to be faithful. Every decision to honor and not be distracted, and not compromise, or put other things first. I have a feeling that at the Bema seat, which will, all, will be a judgment of things done in the body, but also like an awards ceremony, I think we're going to be really surprised. Common saints 
in obscure places, receiving huge rewards. You know, the Bible talks in the New Testament of five crowns mentioned through Scripture. I'm sure there's more, but it mentions five. And I don't have time to go through them, but the awards in the kingdom are not for the fastest, not for the strongest, not for competing against other believers. What are we competing against? The world. The devil. Our own flesh. The final exam. That's something everybody can decide for tonight. To achieve it. For some, tonight's the night to decide, I'm going to fix this. Somebody said the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. (laughs) Second best time is today. And that's true in destiny. Verse 17 is commonly quoted, but look at the context. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. There's a power in repentance and the new creation in the altar to have all things become new. If you've been born again and you've been negligent, you just need to get born again again. Just need to get under the spout. Let God touch you again and make you brand new and give you the power to make right decisions. Make decisions, verse 9. Based on this, please God. You know, one of the five crowns is the crown of rejoicing. The soul winner's crown. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? One of the things that's going to happen in the awards ceremony, in the final exam, is there's going to be a representation of the souls that we have participated in winning for Christ. That we had some involvement, either direct or indirect. You know, a few years back in in, uh, Thursday night, I, I told the story of being in Kenya and doing the play, Choosing Heaven or Hell, and I mentioned these wild kids These wild young kids, man, wreaking havoc through the slums. They would come to the play, and I mean, hundreds of them, and they would get up at the altar call and just scream and be manic and totally disrupted. And the ushers, you know, unbeknownst to me, decided they were going to try to keep these kids out, and they were carrying green branches from trees and flogging them. And I mean, this was out of control. And hundreds of people, thousands of people are being saved. And, and uh, I told the story about how I learned that some of them got saved. And last year I had the privilege of going back to Nairobi. And I got a picture with four of them. These guys were some of the wildest. You think you've seen wild kids at Walmart? I'm telling you, you've seen nothing. <laughs> Till you've seen these, these wild kids in the slums of Nairobi. They're all in ministry. The one on the left. The one all the way to the left there. That's Duncan. 
He was a pastor, and now he's an evangelist. The next one, to the right of him with the, with the stripes on his shirt, that's Dixon. Dixon pastors one of our leadership churches with 140 people. All the way to the right, the guy with the glasses and the phone, that's George. He pastors 80 people. And next to him, that's Evans. Evans was an evangelist for a while, but while back in Nairobi, church recently got into a motorbike accident, went home to be with Jesus. He passed his exam, I think. Verse 8, we are confident, yet well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body present with the Lord. You know, the least significant part of that picture is me. Because the truth is, while they did get saved, listen, they were between 10 and 12 years old. 10 and 12 years old. When they they finally came in, they said they used to go to one church of false religion because they gave food away, but then they used to come to our church because I preached the gospel in the evenings and got saved, 10 to 12 years old. My daughter would have taught some of them in Sunday school, but it was only after we left that these young men became disciples under Patrick Nyamai, got married, went into ministry. That is the fruit of this conference. Because before the tent... All the way back in Ruth Street, 1987, this conference sent a missionary to Nairobi. I just saw a picture of this recently. Steve Zapata sent me a picture. It was actually me and my wife getting sent out to New York. But just a couple workers down was the the missionary that planted this church. It would be 10 years before me and my wife would go there. But in 30 years, there's been lots of missionaries in Kenya. There's been lots of people that gave money to Kenya, even in this room. There's been lots of teams that have gone there. There's been many pastors that have gone there to preach. There has been tens of thousands of precious souls. And you know what? You know what? There's going to be a crown of rejoicing for many people in this room because of people just like you saw on the screen. And that's only one example of the hundreds and thousands of more churches and souls in local communities and cities and nations. And these places have been impacted by saints building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Every day for us in the kingdom of God that the Lord tarries gives us an additional day to prepare for our final exam. Every day that Jesus tarries is another day to repair our own report cards. Your final exam is rapidly approaching. What are you doing to prepare? I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. The final exam.
There's going to be a judgment. First and foremost, there's going to be heaven or hell. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Heaven or hell is not going to be based on God weighing your good against your bad. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There isn't anybody good enough to go to heaven. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross, the innocent for the guilty. He died for me. And the punishment he bore was what I deserved and what you deserved. And he took our place and rose from the dead. And by his blood is the only way to be forgiven. The only way to make heaven, the only way to miss hell. And there's a book in heaven. And that book has the names of people that have repented, put faith in Christ, and been born again. And if your name is not written in that book, you will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is not because that's what God wants for you, but because he allows human beings to make a choice. We're going to open these altars. But first, I want to make an appeal I'm an ambassador. Later in the chapter, it says, we're ambassadors for Christ. I beseech you, be reconciled to God. I have a message for you from the king. He wants you in heaven. Be reconciled to God. And there's people here, you need to get saved, and you can get saved right now. If you will turn from your sin, repent, put your faith in Christ, he'll set you free. Before we open the altars, we want to give time for people. You're ready to do that? I want you to signify that by raising your hand. All We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vbph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vbph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.